0: Well, you can imagine even when I decided not to practice law anymore, that was a a very hard conversation with parents. I just couldn't understand why would I throw away such an education, all the investment and chase some wild idea. Depleting your cash reserves (laughs) to the max. So yeah, you're borrowing from credit cards, you're in debt. It was emotionally and just financially tough. I think one of the biggest mistakes that I think an entrepreneur could make is I wasn't happy. I wasn't happy because I felt like I'm not building anything. I'm not really creating value. What do you think the main thing you learned? The main thing I learned was the importance of having an exit strategy.
1: Oh, I see what you did there.
0: Yeah. And <laughs> that was my key takeaway. Hi, I'm Turaj Parang. I'm 49 years old and I am in Los Altos Hills, California, which is sort of at the center of Silicon Valley. And I've been an entrepreneur around tech since the late 90s.
1: And what is your company?
0: Well, my current company is Serve Robotics, which is a autonomous sidewalk robotics startup. I know that's a mouthful, but what we do is basically have these super intelligent robots, kind of think of it as a Tesla on a sidewalk, that can do things such as deliver food or other convenience items or other things.
1: Yeah, I know I've seen videos of it Till I went to your website. Now I realize, like, I guess I don't know if you're the only company that does it, but I haven't seen these things around, but I've definitely seen videos of these kind of little robots that almost look like they're coolers on wheels, maybe delivering stuff.
0: It's true, yes. There have been actually a few for a number of years. Usually there have been smaller and you're right, they're like coolers, more close to the ground. Ours is actually larger, so more like a shopping cart size. And we designed those to be specifically for urban environments. A lot of the legacy robots were made for more college campuses, more constrained environments, and they required traditionally less autonomy. So they were in a way remote controlled. So you would have folks in Latin America or maybe some Eastern European countries where labor is cheaper and people would do labor arbitrage. What we came up with was a robot that could actually be autonomous so that you could get a lot more leverage. One person could monitor and pilot multiple robots at the same time. So you get the scale economies there, as well as they're safer when they're autonomous. So there's a lot of technology that has gone into our robot, for instance, versus some of the other ones that some people may have seen.
1: And that's interesting what you said when you're saying that maybe the first generation of these types of robots, I mean, that's pretty clever. And I've kind of always heard of like, before you go full automation or AI, if you can do some type of arbitrage, like you're saying, if I had someone in the Philippines that I'm paying to drive it around like a robot, and I, from my point of view think it's actually AI technology or some type of technology, but really it's just a robot that someone's steering from across the world.
0: Exactly, exactly. And the project actually got started when we were inside of Postmates, a food delivery company back in 2017. And we were just trying to see if robots could augment the human fleet. We were founded actually by someone who's a good friend and has a PhD in robotics and computer vision. So he was the right man for the job. And he figured out a way to actually bring high levels of autonomy to the sidewalk, which is super exciting because with autonomy, you're not only able to leverage humans much better, but you also are safer. A robot on the spot can react a lot faster than against someone in Philippines could, with all the latency that goes on in the connections and, uh, you know, humans make mistakes and we want to avoid any potential incidents. Although with these robots, whether cooler size or uh, shopping cart size, there isn't much damage they can do, but still you want to be safe, especially when crossing streets. And they are interacting with people, with animals, with kids on the sidewalks. So safety has always been something that was top of mind for us, especially when we were born inside of a larger organization like Postmates. Now, Postmates got acquired by Uber. And after that acquisition, we talked to the management team at Uber, and they agreed that this technology was much better standalone rather than inside any one company. So about a year and a couple of months ago, it was spun out as an independent company. So when we came out, we raised money, and we are now a venture-backed, traditional kind of startup with that pedigree of having been born inside of a larger organization for a few years and having had the luxury to invest in the technology. That some of the smaller startups that are coming right off and trying to do this may not have the resources to have the latest hardware and other things, sensors that are needed for an autonomous robot.
1: And so what's your role at the company at Serve Robotics? I'm the chief operating officer.
0: So I, I wear many hats. And that's because of the fact that I've actually worn many hats, having been around Silicon Valley since the late 90s. And one hat I wore when I started out was a lawyer, a corporate lawyer. So a lot of legal stuff tend to find their way to me, even though I'm not a practicing lawyer anymore. But once you're branded a lawyer, always a lawyer. The other hat is business development. That's a lot of what we do is make sure we partner with larger companies such as Uber or 7-Eleven, who are both partners of ours, and create those relationships where they can leverage our robots as part of their fleet. And you'll see that coming more and more, becoming more and more prevalent, where brands and platforms like Uber, et cetera, can augment their human capabilities with robotics. And then the other hat that I wear is internal operations, people operations, finance, things kind of like the day-to-day activities and making sure we have the right team in place and looking at the right metrics.
1: So were you with this company when it was at Postmates? And then really, how did you actually end up joining it? And were you like one of the founders?
0: It's an interesting story. So the founder, Ali Kashani, whom I mentioned was kind of the brains that started the project inside Postmates. Him and I go way back. We were friends. I was a mentor to him. And when he came to US from Canada, which I partially blame myself for, we enticed him to leave beautiful British Columbia, Vancouver, and come to Silicon Valley because we thought he would be great here. When he came, I introduced him to a venture capital firm where I am an operating partner, an advisor. Called Pair VC here in Palo Alto. And he and I did a little project. He became an EIR entrepreneur in residence at Pair. And him and I worked on a little project, which was AI for food and menu selection. And we kind of showed that around to potential partners, and Postmates was one. And Postmates actually turned around and wanted to acquire that project. So as a result of that acquisition, Ali became the head of Postmates X, which is their special projects division. And that that was kind of like the inception of how this project even got started within Postmates. So, I've been watching it from its inception, but I joined it full-time once the Uber spin-off was underway.
1: And yeah, you said you were with I guess Pair VC and we can rewind and understand your chronological order later on, but when you were with Pair VC and I guess you decided to join them, I don't know, maybe like a year or two ago. Are you not really in the venture capital realm anymore? Because I I imagine you only have so much time. So, And if you're doing the day-to-day of serve robotics, I imagine that's hard to be part of a VC firm at the same time.
0: Right. Well, it is. It is. My full-time focus is on serve robotics, of course. But I feel such kinship with young entrepreneurs, and I have such passion for supporting and, and cheerleading entrepreneurs' new ideas that I can't help myself, but <laughs> find myself get involved with various projects. And PerVC VC actually is founded by a very good friend of mine, whom I've known since the early 2000s, and we have collaborated on many projects together. So when he started actually pervc VC, he brought me on as an advisor, and I've been involved since the beginning of that fund as a mentor to the portfolio. So every semester, let's say, I have a couple of projects that I am involved with and have office hours, so to speak, with those portfolio companies that can piggyback and leverage some of my learnings. And I love just brainstorming with them. And honestly, it just keeps me in the loop of the latest and greatest. So I take great pleasure in that. And it's just a privilege to be involved with that fund. And we've had some amazing startups that came out of VC, It's a very unique venture capital firm. A lot of the founders that go through there are first-time founders, people who have actually never done a business before. This could be college students that some of them may actually decide to take a year off of college and come and try their hand at being an entrepreneur. Recent graduates and other very young but ambitious mission-driven entrepreneurs who is amazing to see how they build these tremendous businesses starting from very, very humble beginnings
1: and just an idea on a napkin, so to speak. And so in your spare time between Pair VC and Serve Robotics, you also decided you wanted to write a book? Yes.
0: (laughs) So it does sound crazy. There is not much spare time, but I felt that actually I was repeating some of the same advice over and over again to many entrepreneurs. And sadly, Some of these entrepreneurs were coming to me at a time when giving that advice was late, too late. And the conversation would go something like this. They would come to me and ask, hey, you know, we've been doing this business for the past, let's say, year, a couple of years, and we just don't feel like we are getting traction and we're interested in selling the business. And I would say, well, okay, well, that's fine. How much runway do you have? And they would tell me, well, we have three months left. So at that point, you know, there's very little one can do unless they have taken the time to be deliberate about creating strategic partnerships, having potential acquirers sort of that know them and they can approach and accelerate those conversations. But really, it's just too late. So that's one scenario. The other one is that I would get a frantic call from a founder who would say, look, I just got an inbound Acquisition interests, we're not really ready. We don't know how to think about this. What should we do? Or, hey, we are doing our fundraising. There's someone that we would love to acquire us, but they're now expressing interest to invest in us. What should we do? So these things happen quite often. And I felt that as someone who has been pretty much on every side of the table of these conversations, I could summarize my learnings and also some of the hard lessons I've learned myself and put them in a book format so that others can hopefully benefit from, right? So that's kind of the starting point of the idea. Now, I was very naive (laughs) when I started. I didn't know anything about the writing process. This was five years ago. So it took me five years to carve out nights and weekends. And sometimes I would ask for a week off so that I could just work on the book. And my family has been just tremendously patient with me because it would have been time that I would spend with them.
1: Yeah. That was my next question. Do you have a family?
0: <laughs> I do. I, I have two young daughters uh, in seventh grade and third grade right now. And we just acquired a puppy. <laughs> so we became puppy parents. And he is seven months old.
1: I see Redwood City is where it says Serve Robotics is. I don't know how close everything is. Is that exactly where you live too? You know, Los Altos
0: Hills is where I live. And uh, it's, you know, but decent traffic is... 20 minutes away from Redwood City, where one of our offices is. We have also another office in Southern California. And we do most of our deliveries right now in the LA area, West Hollywood region. And we also have a number of folks working out of Vancouver, British Columbia. So as many companies these days are, we are pretty spread out. A lot of remote meetings. It's actually seldom for people to go into the office unless there is a specific meeting or if they're, of course, in the operations that are that doing deliveries or maintaining the robots, that's a different story. But the corporate folks and people who are involved with software, they can work from anywhere these days.
1: But it's bad when you do it to your wife, though, because then you have to crash on the couch. <laughs> See, I have to sleep on the couch every night, too, man. See, we're the same. Was that helpful at all, Gary? Say no. <laughs> Worst experience of my life. One star review. <laughs> <laughs> yeah thank you I'm used to those wish I could leave no stars <laughs> oh
0: yeah oh yeah. Uh, no thanks guys it was a really great experience I feel
1: like there's a lot to reflect on so yeah thank you and I can connect you with somebody too okay I have connections on that so I can help you get it custom made dirt cheap I'll share that with you look at that patreon membership already paying off Aww, look at that Well, yeah, you told us you did the book over five years and kind of did it maybe on the nights and weekends and whatnot. But even with pair VC and with Serve Robotics, how are you able to divvy up your time? Do you think you're pretty good with like time management? Because I always think, I guess we can learn from those. And sometimes I forget to ask about those tips. So I don't know if you have anything or any suggestions on what's worked well for you to, I imagine, to take control of your time and be able to work kind of these two companies.
0: It's kind of a trick I learned probably 10 years ago, is to schedule it. (laughs) If you don't schedule it, it's not going to happen. So I actually make specific time blocks in my calendar for, let's say, email or for catching up on news. Pretty much anything that I can schedule, I will try to schedule. So when you look at my calendar, it's like pretty much there is no (laughs) openings in there. Even family time, I try to be more conscious about it and schedule it so that nothing else impinges on it. That's been one. The other thing, the other tool quote-unquote is to have a priority list. So I, I try to send myself an email every couple of days with my highest priority items and so that I don't lose track of them. So that's another another one of those tricks. I can't say that I've necessarily cracked the code on it, but I've become better at it.
1: Yeah, that sounds good. Well, I appreciate that. And then I was going to say, with you doing that, I guess with Server Robotics and then Pair VC, I don't think, did you actually even mention what the title of the book was that you've been working <laughs> on and that's about to come out?
0: Well, the, the title is Exit Path. Thanks for asking. It's about how to win the startup endgame. And it's coming out on August 2nd. And yeah, again, as I mentioned, it's been five years in the works. Mac Rawhill is publishing it and I'm very excited by it.
1: So I guess if anyone wanted to take a break and or at least even while they're listening, I guess it could go to Amazon. We'll have a link in the show notes or whatever for either it's on pre-order or I guess order it now. It sounds like we've just got an overview of kind of your recent jobs and whatnot, but obviously we're about to go through everything that you've done in your life and hopefully I guess took those stories and kind of put them into the book. So maybe that might help other people. So appreciate you giving us the overview of what you do today. Do you mind telling us, I guess, want to rewind to your first stint in entrepreneurship, or we know you went to law school as well. So whatever part of the story you want to get started off on, just tell me what year and how old you were, and then we'll take it from there.
0: Yeah, happy to. And yeah, maybe I can rewind even farther back. So I come from an immigrant family, actually first generation immigrant myself. So we left my home country, which was Iran, when I was 10 and bounced around the world for a few years until we landed. What year was that? 84 or something? Yes, 83. Very, very close. Yes. So, yeah, we went to United Arab Emirates first, couple of years spent there. Then we went to Germany. I went to middle school in Germany, learned German, which is one of those tough languages. <laughs> but we had a good time in Germany. But my parents always had this American dream. They wanted to be in the U.S. They thought it was the place where we would have the most opportunities. So they finally figured out a way to get the visa, and we landed in Los Angeles in late 80s, went to high school, and uh, wanted to do well. So I figured I applied to every good college there is out there. I, I worked really hard to do well on SAT exams and get great grades, and luckily I got accepted into Stanford. And that was my first introduction to the Bay Area and the innovation and the culture here. So I spent 92 to 96 at Stanford and I studied philosophy and economics. So not the hardest subjects, uh, so to speak, although philosophy was pretty challenging uh, (laughs) at Stanford. And it really taught me how to think, how to analyze different concepts. The economics part was so that I would get a job after I graduate. I kind of wanted to balance the practical and the more (laughs) esoteric. But then as I was thinking about careers after graduation, I realized that, you know, this country is a country based on laws. And as an immigrant, I felt that I should really learn the laws. <laughs> so that that was kind of my logic for going to law school. So again, I applied to the law schools that I, I felt that I could get into. And luckily I got into Yale Law School. And it's an interestingly unique law school, Yale. It doesn't really train you to be a lawyer, it trains you how to think and become a better conceptual thinker and someone that can apply the law in different areas. So, And I really liked that about you because I kind of had a feeling that I may not be a lawyer for life. So I wanted to kind of go to a law school that would give me a broad set of skills and tools. But I also knew that I wanted to work and live in the Bay Area, in Silicon Valley, because when I was an undergrad at Stanford, I got exposed to some of these startups and just the innovation and the excitement that was happening, right? This was like the internet was just starting in the 90s and all these ideas and eBay and Amazon, they were just getting off the ground. So I came back in the late 90s and started practicing corporate law. That's where I then got to know a lot of entrepreneurs got to see how to start a company, how to raise money for it, how to sell it, and even worked on IPOs. But then the crash happened, (laughs) the first crash in in 2000, 2001. And I also had enough of a passion for entrepreneurship that I said sort of goodbye to law and jumped ship to a venture capital firm. It was a European venture capital firm that wanted to open an office here in the US. And I basically became like kind of their first associate. I would say that was my years as a venture capitalist were how I got an MBA. As a venture capitalist, you study a lot of business plans. You talk to a lot of fantastic entrepreneurs and get to see, you know, how businesses are actually built and financed. And then at some point, I then summoned up the courage to start my own startup. And that was in 2005. The startup was called Jackster.
1: Well, real quick, before we talk about Jackster, do you mind if I talk about, we just talk about VC and then even before that, how long you were a lawyer?
0: Yeah. So I was about a couple of years a lawyer. My first stint was about nine months. And then after I did venture capital, I went back and I tried it again to see whether maybe I could still be a good lawyer. Maybe I was in the wrong law firm, but then I realized my first decision was the right one. So then I left and (laughs) became an entrepreneur. So again, not the most straightforward career trajectory. I've had a bunch of detours and back and forth to try to figure it out. But once I became an entrepreneur, I realized this is where my passion is. I love being an entrepreneur. I loved creating Jackster. And that startup actually took off. It went from zero to 10 million users within a very quick time period after launching, actually within a year we raised money from some of the best investors out there. We raised $20 million. So it was a wild ride. We won a number of awards, written up on TechCrunch and all the other sort of popular magazines at the time. So we were riding high until it was 2008, 2009. And then we had to actually (laughs) raise money again.
1: Yeah, real quick before we start talking about that, because we haven't even talked about really what Jaxter is. I've been kind of looking at it as you were talking. but. How long were you in venture capital? Let's just talk about that for a minute, too, because that's kind of interesting. And then we'll talk about Jackster.
0: Sure. So I was in venture capital for three years. Again, as I started as a, as an associate, which is sort of the entry level in venture capital firms. And then I became a junior partner by the end of the third year.
1: And what was like the daily grind like there? what were you doing? I know you said you kind of looked at a lot of business plans, but especially before you even start your own first business, it seems like this is the optimal way to go, right? If, you, if you're coming in and looking at all these different business plans and seeing what works and what doesn't.
0: Exactly. It is such, a, such an awesome career. So yes, a lot of it is looking at business plans. So a lot of venture firms get a lot of inbound sort of inquiries from entrepreneurs who are looking for money. But then Really, the way to find the best deals is actually develop a thesis around some area, some industries, specialties, and then go and find all the businesses in that area and then formulate your own hypotheses around who are going to be the winners and try to back them. So yeah, a lot of market research, a lot of networking, and that's actually a place where I learned how to become a business network. And it wasn't an, an intuitive skill for me. I'm an introvert, and a lot of people who meet me don't think so, but (laughs) I am. But I had to learn how to be a networker and how to build relationships and business relationships. And I needed those, right? I needed those not to find investments, but also to do diligence, to find experts who would help me evaluate these opportunities. And then if we made an investment, then help those companies find partners, recruit, so a lot of what a venture capital firm does is actually connect and network with people, with portfolio companies. So that's, I would say,
1: the, the biggest learning I had was how to become a networker. Yeah, and like i never heard the outbound perspective versus like the all the people coming inbound you're saying I think that was pretty smart and you can tell us how you learned that but I'm curious how many deals would you look at a day and how many were coming in especially because I guess it was a new venture capital firm so I don't know if it's like a hustle to try to get that stuff in and like you know how much time you allocated to actually looking at a market and trying to go find companies
0: you're absolutely right so a European they, they were pretty well known in in Germany early bird was the name of the fund and they're still going and going very strong in Europe But in the US, they were not known at all. So yes, we had to get out there, go to conferences and give talks, give presentations, network. So a lot of our time was spent outside of the office, not reviewing business plans, but actually making connections. Also, meet other investors, tell them about what we add as a firm so that they could pull us into their deals in case there is a deal where we would be a fit. We had partners who had very specific areas of expertise, for instance, in healthcare or in network technologies. And we would try to make sure that if there are deals in those areas, that other venture firms who need partners with that expertise could tap us on the shoulder and bring us into the deals. And a number of deals we did were that way.
1: How did you land the venture capital job, like from being a lawyer? So I
0: basically sent an email to an alumni network of Stanford University and basically said, "Look, I am a lawyer. I'm interested in getting into business. I think venture capital would be a fantastic entry point for me and happen to also speak German. So, if those skill sets appeal to anyone, please let me know." And lo and behold, <laughs> I got an email back in a couple of days from someone who said, "You know, my wife is actually starting the US office of a European firm, which is happens to be a German firm, so it could be a fit for you. Why don't you go talk to her? So that lady, her name was Vera Kalmeyer, she passed away since, but she basically took me under her wings
1: and I joined that firm. Saw so that it's like it looked like it was headquartered in Germany. I'm like, well it's smart for anyone to I just learned from this, right? Like if you know another language, try to see if there is a way to connect that. Like what makes you different? And if you didn't speak German, I don't know Maybe you would have not landed the job. I don't know. I don't know how much you got to speak German, but that definitely was a connection that obviously helped.
0: It was definitely, I would say, the thing that stood out in the mind of the person who saw my note. I don't think I would have stood out for him if that wasn't there. So yeah, there are so many more, I would say, qualified people that they could have hired. But that one distinction made a difference. Absolutely.
1: And when you joined this venture capital firm, is this the one that you said you left after a little while, tried to do, be a lawyer again, and then said, no, I'm not a lawyer, and then you actually started your first startup? <laughs> yes. So I left
0: because actually that firm wound down its U.S. operations. So After three years of being in the U.S. market at a time where there was an economic downturn, the European limited partners, the LPs in the firm, asked the firm to focus all their investment activities on Europe because they had no confidence that U.S. would even bounce back in the early 2000s to be a major tech hub anymore. So they kind of gave up on the U.S. The partners themselves, so these are the general partners, not the limited partners. So limited partners in the venture firm are the investors, and then the general partners are the people who actually make the investment decisions and deploy that cash because the general partners still believed in the US, but because they answered to their limited partners, they pulled back from the US. I think downturns are actually a fantastic time to invest. So in hindsight, not the best decision by that firm, but nevertheless, they still have done well in Europe, in Germany. They're still one of the top five firms, I would say, in Germany. So uh, they have done well, but they probably could have even done better had they stuck in the US. Because a lot of great companies came out of that era, early 2000s. And then we had the same story happen again, right, in 2008, 2009. And now we're going through another one. (laughs) So these cycles always happen. And what I have learned is that never bet against the U.S. We seem to be a resilient nation that always bounces back.
1: Yeah, and if we go down, I think everywhere else is kind of screwed too, so... I definitely agree with that sentiment of like, yeah, if we're going to have an issue, then probably everybody is. So when you went ahead and went back to be a lawyer, how long were you a lawyer again before you did your startup? And then we can talk about how you got money and tell us a little bit about your startup, Jackster.
0: Sure. So yes, I was a lawyer for two years at O'Melveny & Myers, a great law firm, again, in in the Silicon Valley office. represented a number of startups on all the corporate work. (laughs) But I just realized that I had always this passion, desire to be an entrepreneur.
1: Also, I could see you having like maybe passion, but did you like actually like hate being a lawyer? Like there's a difference between like not liking it and hating your job.
0: Yeah, you're right about that. I don't know if hate maybe maybe too strong of a sentiment. Maybe if I'm more self-aware, I would have even recognized it. But I wasn't happy. I wasn't happy because I felt like I'm not building anything. I'm not really creating value. I'm coming in after the fact and documenting things, but I'm not in the driver's seat. I'm just documenting things. Now, I I add value, but I'm not really tremendously. Anyone could have done what I do. So I felt like I'm being underutilized (laughs) and that made me unhappy.
1: Well, it makes sense. I know some people, even when they're coming out of law school, they don't realize what lawyers do or how long they work, and then they end up just hating it so much that they'll do anything else. But I guess yeah, you find over time what you actually ended up liking more, or disliking. Again, maybe it's not necessarily hate, but sometimes it can be that way, just depending on the environment. Even if you don't like the job or whatnot.
0: Yeah, and it's a personality thing. There are just amazing lawyers out there that have the temperament and personality for it. Very detail oriented very much a master of their craft. And I have tremendous respect for them. But I couldn't see myself becoming one of them.
1: Actually, there was an episode, episode 115. So it was a long time ago, I still remember this guy, he was going through a divorce. And he said his first lawyer was such a nice guy, he went through two divorces. So he said his first one was such a nice guy that he realized that I never want to ever hire a nice lawyer ever again, you want to hire one that's an asshole. And then when he did that on his second marriage, it worked out much better. So I don't know if you have that perspective as well, but I thought, I mean, I never even thought about that. It's like, you don't have to like the guy. It's like the guy was just trying to please him and didn't really give him the best deal versus the guy he hated basically kind of as his lawyer or disliked a lot. He actually got him a way better deal. So I thought that was kind of interesting perspective I hadn't heard before.
0: That is interesting. And there's actually two big divisions, right? Or two groups of lawyers. There is corporate lawyers that are a lot more transactional and their job is less adversarial. They're more there to basically make sure that the contracts reflect the reality of what the parties have agreed to. And they're sort of peacemakers at the same time and kind of create win-wins as much as possible, right? And then there's the litigators. So there, these are the typical lawyers you see on TV <laughs> who are there to win for just one side, not win-win. It's actually win-lose. <laughs> so So if you have a corporate-minded person in a litigation situation then you can get a mismatch uh, i can see why some people wouldn't be happy with a litigator that is less than zealous
1: yeah no it makes sense they always said like when i was doing like real estate like real estate transactions you just you want a guy who's just going to get it done not going to cause a pain of and same thing with like i guess getting a business deal done or a venture fund you want someone who's going to make sure they try to make it work for everybody versus the guy who again is going to cause issues but <laughs> if you are having to go through divorce or go through or break up with partners and you have to get lawyers involved, then you probably want the guy who's probably not the nicest guy. Yes.
0: Yeah. You want the TV lawyers.
1: <laughs> exactly. So from there, you started Jaxter. So tell us about that. And it's spelled J-A-X-T-R, just so everyone knows.
0: Right. Yes. So Jaxter was kind of born out of a insight and a frustration. The insight was, look, the world is moving towards mobile communications. and this is a before iPhone era. <laughs> this was 2004, 2005. So the iPhone was not there yet.
1: How about to say, I didn't think the iPhone was quite there yet. All right. No,
0: it was not. And phone calls were tremendously expensive, actually. To send a text message, you would have to pay per text. To call Europe, you would go broke. <laughs> so it was a very different era. But people loved social communications. So they are MySpace and friends there. There were a lot, all these social networks coming up. Facebook was just getting started. And we realized, well, you know, people love talking on these platforms, but they also love talking on their phone, but these two are not connected. So can we create a way to bridge the gap between your phone and your social identities and do it in a way that actually circumvents the phone companies? charges. (laughs) charges. <laughs> so th- that's how Jaxer was born. And we created this widget you could put on your MySpace profile or your Friendster page, Facebook page, that people could call you from it. And it would ring their phone, it would ring your phone, and you guys could talk to each other. And in that widget, you could actually type text and it would be sent to your phone as well. So that was the origin, the idea of Jax And it was just really novel and viral. Because communication is viral by nature, right? You can't just communicate with yourself. (laughs) So you need to have somebody else, and that person needs to talk to somebody else. So it just took off. Skype was a technology used a lot at the time, and we actually got a lot of inspiration from Skype, but we wanted to bring Skype to the mobile phones. At the time, Skype was only on your desktop or laptop phone.
1: And did you have this idea back when you were like a venture capitalist, like looking at markets? Like, how did you come across this idea to? Do this.
0: I was introduced to peer-to-peer technologies. So there was this thing called Napster or CASA for music peer-to-peer sharing.
1: LimeWire. I think that's a that was a newer yes, one. Yes, yes, yeah. that was uh, that was an... not not that I've ever used any of those. But from what I hear, right, <laughs>
0: of course, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And Skype was actually leveraging peer-to-peer technology for communications, and so. I was introduced to that and I had this thought in the back of my head that, hey, couldn't we use that peer-to-peer technology with mobile devices as well? But I'm not a technologist, <laughs> I have a philosophy major, an econ major, right? So I found a person who was an expert in telecom and basically made him my co-founder. And the two of us did a lot of brainstorming sessions and talked to a lot of other people to really distill the idea to its essence and then started building a team around it, talk to investors. And our first money was really from friends and family who wrote us 25K checks. I think total was 200K just to have an office and hire our first engineers. But once we had the prototype and people could do that thing that I just mentioned, right? They could go on the web, type in their phone number into a little widget and get their phone ring. That was just a magical experience. Like, how did that happen? And on just that prototype, we were able to raise significant venture capital money to then bring this to actual commercial scale.
1: How long did it take to make like a prototype for you to get actual venture capital money? I would say it took four to five months. And at the time, building a website was
0: like a Herculean effort, right? So. All the things we have today have made getting a startup off and running so much easier. So probably that if we were to do it today, that four or five months would have been condensed into probably just a couple of weeks.
1: Well, I mean, I still think that's insane quick. I mean, I feel like some people take forever to, because this is a big technology kind of change too, right? Or were you able to use some code from somewhere else? Like, I I don't even know what you used to set this all up, you know?
0: Right. It was really just a mashup of things that existed. I mean, we had to do some novel development as well, but a lot of it was leveraging what already existed. But today, you know, there's Twilio. A lot of what we had built has now become a platform that you can just tap into. Like Twilio is a great example. You can initiate a call or text message using the Twilio APIs very easily. Any junior developer can do that just within a day.
1: Right, but you're saying like a website, I feel like even back in, let's say 2005, I feel like that would be way easier than the platform that you were building to connect a mobile phone, right? I mean, I don't know if you're, because it was BlackBerry was the main thing I think everyone was using. So I don't know if you like kind of developed an app No, no apps. Yeah,
0: no apps. It would just call your phone. So we would basically use the phone telephony system to route the call. And then, yeah, the magic was how do you call two phones and basically bridge it. It was basically creating a conference call in a way.
1: Would you have to download
0: software? No, it was all happening on our servers. All we got was basically the the two input points were the two phone numbers. And we would basically generate those calls and connect.
1: Okay. Yeah, because I'm trying to put my brain back in that era you know of like how you did it like i think there's might have been some basic mobile apps on blackberry but I'm just trying to figure out like exactly how you're able to do this and figure that out. I guess your co-founder, he just did most of it. And like, what were you doing? Or I don't know if you're helping him with that too. I know you said you didn't have that background, but just curious, like what you're doing at the same time, why he's kind of getting this tech, I guess, to work.
0: Yes, he was doing the tech. I was doing kind of like the business planning and figuring out, okay, what's, what's the market and what's the go-to market strategy and who would be our customers? Who would this be good for? Right. Immigrants who are trying to call back home, or is it just kids who are trying to talk to each other on MySpace? So I did actually a lot of market research. So I would just go on these uh, social platforms and just talk to people and hey, ask them, hey, do you want to try this out? Let me know what you think. So a lot of user studies, right? Very one on one field testing.
1: Yeah, Well, it looks like this was founded in 2007. This was what I was kind of thinking of, too. This was a little hardware that people had put into their computer was the magic jack. Do you remember that thing? Yes. I just randomly thought about that. But like, again, it's hard to put yourself because this is we're thinking 15 years ago of how different it was and how you're able to do it. But obviously, it seems like your technology was way better than having some hardware and doing it that way.
0: It was. And actually, we started with a hardware idea. And every investor we spoke to said, don't do hardware. It's
1: just too hard.
0: It is not only too hard. It's just yeah, too slow. If you want to have something that's kind of be viral like Skype, it has to be software. You can't just distribute hardware that fast. And you need a lot of money. <laughs> Time and money, neither of which we had.
1: I remember one of our guests said, you know, hardware is hard. Yes. Because then you're talking about manufacturing and products and we're not even just talking about tech and then how long till the tech's useless? Because I can't believe the Magic Jack was invented after your platform that you created.
0: Yeah, it was around the same time. Yeah, I I think it was in the same era.
1: Yeah, it says 2007 on Wikipedia. Hmm, really interesting. Maybe it was a different name. But that's only like a year afterwards. Yeah, you're right. It could have been a different name, but it's about the same time regardless.
0: Yes, yes, and it's funny though. Fate has brought me back to hardware again.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, no, now I, for- I forgot what you even do today. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> now you can prove out that hardware was hard, right? Yes, now I'm experiencing it. So, how long did you do Jackster for? And can you just tell us like how big the company got and give us some more metrics?
0: Yes, sure. So we we raised twenty million over the four years course of its history. Our last round of financing, funny enough, was by Lehman Brothers, the venture arm of Lehman Brothers. And a couple of months after that, they went bankrupt. I can't take credit for that. <laughs> but it was a sign of times. And we grew to 70 employees and had to do painful layoffs after the Lehman Brothers bankruptcy to find also other employment. We we tried to help our employees to find other jobs. And you know, in a downturn, the unfortunate thing is that everybody is doing a layoff. So those were some of the hardest days of Jaxter, just the layoffs and the aftermath. And unfortunately, then also we found ourselves in a position like those entrepreneurs I was mentioning earlier, that we didn't have that much cash left in the bank and we needed to do something. We couldn't raise any more money because we were focused on growth, right? And the, you know, pre-Great Depression, we didn't have the financial discipline to look at profitability. We were just acquiring users and pretty much subsidizing a lot of telephony costs to acquire those users. And the hope was we would convert an app of the free users to paid users that the math would work out. But to optimize conversion rates, you need a lot of time and patience and experimentation. And we just weren't able to get there in time. So we needed to do something fast. And then that was when we started realizing, gosh, it would have been nice to have some strategic partners or someone who could acquire us. And that's kind of when it dawned on me that we made a big mistake by not pursuing those partnerships. We were kind of heads down and executing really just within our own four walls and not paying much attention to the ecosystem around us. And it was too late, right? We only had six months to get a deal done to sell the startup. And the uh, only deal we could find was pretty much a fire sale.
1: Thanks for coming, remember? Oh, well, I got to thank uh, my business partner. She signed me up because I've been talking about you. Well, awesome business partner. I'm going to have to use that as a plug to tell people to do the same thing. Yeah, yeah, it's really cool. But anyway, yeah, thanks for uh, setting this up. I get kind of the VIP treatment, I feel like. <laughs> But I thought it was a lot more intimate than I thought
0: it was going to be. Like anyone who's thinking about doing it, you'll be able to to get involved, ask a question, you know, which I don't have a lot of experience with other group calls, but I would assume that there's kind of a hierarchy to it. But this one, if you're in there, you're going to get your shot to ask an expert a question.
1: So I tried to compare my group calls. I started joining random entrepreneur groups and just joining their group calls and try to see what they're like. Dude, the one you were on and all of them have kind of gone that way. They're all 10x better than any other group I've been in because become a member to find out. And when you say fire sell, are you just selling what percentage are you selling versus what you thought it was worth?
0: It was basically pennies on the dollars. It was selling it to another startup who was interested in some of the technology and our user base, which was pretty big. And they didn't have much cash, so they gave us equity in that startup. And then they weren't able to really pull it off either. So no one really recouped anything from their investment in
1: Jackster. And so what did you do from Jackster? Did you like join that company that acquired you? No,
0: they didn't hire any of the employees. So pretty much everyone was let go, including the founders. And... I basically took a six month mental health break (laughs) because it was a grueling experience.
1: Yeah. I didn't know they had those back then.
0: Yeah. No, I was, I felt completely unable to do anything. It was paralyzing. You're riding high and all of a sudden, you know, this, this, this happens. But luckily I was connected to another founder. Whose company was where Jackster was <laughs> really when we we shut down, which is they had a lot of users. They had actually figured out this was the difference with what Jackster had, and they had figured out monetization a little bit, but they hadn't fully nailed it. This company was called Webs, and they were a website creation platform.
1: So before we talk about Webs real quick, I know you said you had the, I mean, six months sabbatical to mental health and whatnot. I mean, up to this point, was this like your lowest point personally? Because it seems like everything had worked out pretty well for you as far as you went to Stanford, you went to Yale, you were a lawyer, you figured you didn't really like that. You did some VC stuff and now you've had a, seemed like a thriving company. And then all of a sudden you have to sell it for nothing. And I imagine you didn't make any money.
0: That's correct. Yeah. Did not make any money. And you know, with startups, you also don't draw significant salary. So you're depleting your cash reserves <laughs> to the max. So yeah, you're borrowing from credit cards, you're in debt. So yes, it was emotionally and just financially tough.
1: What did your parents think and friends?
0: Well, you can imagine even when I decided not to practice law anymore, that was a (laughs) very hard conversation with parents. They just couldn't understand why would I throw away such an education, all the investment and chase some wild idea. But, you know, surprisingly, they were supportive, uh, of course. I mean, not surprisingly, I I guess, thankfully, they were supportive. So they didn't kick me when I was down. But I'm sure in the back of their minds are like, oh, I knew that.
1: (laughs) I figured, especially like foreign parents, when you've gone through this much education, you've had the premium education and... You had everything that they would have wanted for you, basically. But even when you start your own company and things were going well, they are probably like, yeah, look, you know, we we believed in them the whole time when they did it. And then when it goes down, you're, you're like, at least they're there to hopefully support you emotionally and whatnot.
0: Yes, definitely. And it's a confusing thing for parents. I have a lot of empathy for them. They couldn't make sense of all the decisions. But they were there and they were at least not berating me and not taking away my confidence, which was helpful to bounce back. And I was able to look back and say, "Okay, what did I learn from this experience and how can I apply it to my next experience? That's exactly what I did at WEBS.
1: What do you think the main thing you learned?
0: The main thing I learned was the importance of having an exit strategy
1: Oh, I see what you did there.
0: Yeah. <laughs> but it's it's truly, that was my key takeaway, was, look, I wish we could have sold this startup at a much, much better price to a much better acquirer who could actually leverage the technology and all the four years of blood, sweat, and tears that have gone into this and take it to the next level. That would have been ideal. And that's what happened to a lot of our competitors. So two years before we went under... <laughs> Grand Central, actually, which there were four startups that started at the same time with Jaxer. There was Grand Central, there was Ribbit, and <laughs> there was Django. So but let me talk about Grand Central. In 2007, they got sold to Google, and that became Google Talk, you may remember. And that's Google Voice now. And, you know, it became a core part of the Google platform for communications. So that was an excellent exit. And they didn't fully report the price, but it was somewhere between $50 to to $100 million. The year after that, another startup that started with us uh, in 2008 got sold, Ribbit. And they sold the company before it had even launched the product publicly. So they had no users. And they got sold to British Telecom for $100 million. So now it's (laughs) our time, and this is what happened to us. And then a couple of months after we sort of had that disastrous sale, Jaja, which was another competitor, they sold for $200 million to Telefonica in Europe. So (laughs) when you kind of look at those data points, then you can see how the Jaxx story could have turned very differently had we made some critical decisions along the way. That we didn't, right? So, and what all those startups had in common was they had strategic partners. They were very much out there building those relationships when we were singularly focused on just what we were doing.
1: What's a strategic partner?
0: Georgia, for instance, became the voice communications channel for Yahoo's portal. Yahoo had a messenger service and Georgia was basically powering the voice channel for that. In case of Ribbit, they were working with the telcos, uh, basically like British Telecom, to figure out ways that they could basically use their technology inside of their services. So these would be distribution partners, would be one category of strategic partners. You could also have other types of partners. There could be suppliers to you. They could be doing co-marketing with them, basically, different companies that work with you in getting the product out there or distributing it.
1: Well, who could have been your strategic partner now looking back? Because I'm trying to get an idea of if you were kind of like a plug-in, you're trying to use MySpace and people make free calls. I mean, I can't think back in the day of who would have been a good strategic partner with your technology.
0: Well, in hindsight, it looks like a lot of the telecom companies could have been interesting because they're all trying to innovate and figure out new solutions and services. So they could have been very good, like if British Telecom had acquired us. We think we had a much better technology than what they bought with Ribbit. That would have been great. You know, these platforms like Yahoo and Portals, we would call them back in the day. Google itself, although they bought Grand Central pretty quickly, so they had their own solution. Other social networks like Facebook, etc. If we had really pursued them systematically rather than just Focus on our own growth. We never thought about growing with those partnerships because of the viral nature of our own product. I would say we became arrogant and we said, look, we don't need them. In fact, our CEO was interviewed right after the Grand Central acquisition and he stated explicitly that we do not want to be acquired. We are not pursuing or we won't be acquired. We think we can build a big billion dollar company ourselves on our own which was a true statement about our attitude with regards to the ecosystem that we were in.
1: So what was the ultimate failure? Just not getting, you kind of mentioned not getting enough people to pay. I don't know how much they were going to pay versus the free users. Like there's just way too many free users and that was costing you way too much money at the end of the day, right? Right.
0: We basically hadn't figured out that compelling value proposition that would make people move beyond the free tier to the paid tier.
1: And so if there was a way for you to help, I think maybe Singular Wireless was around then or something like that. I'm trying to think because I think AT&T eventually bought it or something. But it was like if you would have gone to them, it would have been cheaper for them to send text messages as a company than they could have acquired you. And that would have been the win. That's where you get the value at. So I'm trying to strategically think about, like you said, like how do you even find those strategic partners and how do you think about it? So.
0: Right. Yes, exactly. And besides just the mechanics of what that strategic partnership would have looked like, at the very least, what we could have done was to build personal relationships with key decision makers at those companies so that we could have stayed top of mind, like with folks like British Telecom or Telefonica that bought Jaja. We could have been top of mind for them and they would have at least looked at us. (laughs) They didn't even as part of their diligence, they didn't even talk to us, right? They didn't even know what else was in the market. They probably had seen our press, but they didn't know under the hood what our technology was about. and We may have been a better fit for them. But because we didn't create those relationships, because we weren't deliberate and proactive in our outreach, it's not enough, of course, to just send them a LinkedIn message and say, hey, <laughs> we exist. It would have had to be something that had a regular cadence of communication, interaction, build trust, because these acquisitions take time. And I may come back to this towards the end, but you know, I spent seven years on the acquirer side after all this, <laughs> before I joined SERV, and I've seen how acquisitions happen now. And they take a lot of time and a lot of courtship between the target and the buyer.
1: Yeah, I guess it's just hard, especially because at that point you're in your young 30s, right? I think you got out when you're like 35 or so, so around that age, but it's hard to put that in your calendar. Like we're talking about how you block out time of like, let me do a strategic relationship and make sure I'm emailing people because there's no proof that you actually kind of got something done. You know, I think over time versus I guess if you're really working on the product and making it better, there's more proof and maybe more incentive to do that. But I guess you're just saying at the end of the day, you have to, uh, balance what you're doing in the business to I guess think of that maybe that's definitely something I would not have thought of so
0: right no it's just a balancing short term against long term right and we have so much fire drills as entrepreneurs on a daily basis that we tend to lose sight of some of the more strategic long term things but at the end of the day actually those end up being what makes all the difference in our business we still have to put out the day to day fires But if we are not deliberate and strategic about where we are heading, we may lose the business altogether.
1: Right. Like you did. So, yeah, well, well, thanks for diving into the details there. I think that helped a lot. So from there, again, six months of then you join webs. What do you do there? And maybe we can go a little bit faster along these other timelines. I know I kind of slowed you down a lot there, but I think it's really interesting hearing that first company and what went wrong, and then we'll hear the difference of, I guess, at the end, how that perspective helped you with your book and whatnot.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So at Web's, basically, we had a lot of users, and we had a decent conversion rate, but on average, the conversion between free and the paid was not making us profitable. So one challenge was to figure out, okay, what do we do? And is this business something that can scale? The business had been founded a few years before I joined, But I joined as a head of strategy and corporate development with that singular mission to kind of see, okay, what's the next stage of this business? When we did a deep dive into our data, we realized that one cohort of our users were a lot better than the rest. They complained the least, they converted the most, and yeah, they were overall happiest customers. And those were the small businesses that were using our platform. So it was a generic website creation platform. But the small businesses were the ones that were really benefiting from it financially, commercially, and they're willing to pay for it. So, what we decided to do was to double down on that insight and really make ourselves a small business creation platform, right? Online small business creation platforms across web, mobile, and social. And in order to do that, we had to not only change some of our messaging, the way users interacted with us, but also some fundamental features, add features. And as a result of that, we acquired actually a couple of companies to add the social angle, for instance, or to add more CRM capabilities that businesses need. Also, (laughs) on the heels of that Jaxer experience, one of the first things I did was organize a strategy offsite and asked everyone, hey, where do we want to go with this company? What is the ideal outcome? And we quickly realized that there were a couple of acquirers on our wish list. And, you know, it would be fantastic if any one of those would acquire us and help this platform go to the next level, right? There were people who actually had significant small business customers. they were public companies, private companies, and they could really use what we had built. On top of the list were folks like Vistaprint, uh, which you may remember, like business card printing company into it, etc. And so we said, okay, fine, let's um, at least start building those relationships. We're not going to sell today, but if we ever want to sell, let's make sure we know them, they know us, and they don't acquire somebody else without talking to us. So that's what I did in two years. we were able to basically turn the business from, again, that generic website creation platform to small business, powerful small business suite of solutions online. And Vistaprint ended up being the one acquiring us at a very healthy price. Uh, it was uh, close to $120 million. And our last round valuation was like around 10 So it was a nice win for the founders, for the team,
1: and for uh, the investors. And for you, did you have any like shares in that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, of course. Yeah.
0: So, yeah, that's, you know, that's why you join startups. You work for startups is the equity upside. And yes, it was a nice outcome. It was the opposite of Jackster for me.
1: Yeah, that sounds like it. All right. And then from there, I guess what happened the last 10 years in your story?
0: Right. So after that, I uh, took some time. Now I had some money. I actually started investing, angel investing
1: in startups. And so you made a lot of money personally. If you can start investing, right? Because before, I don't know how much money you had saved up.
0: It was enough. Yes, it was enough to actually have some free cash to make investments. And people make different priorities. You know, perhaps some people would buy a Ferrari, but for me, <laughs> I would much rather put ten ten thousand dollar checks in ten startups. Right. So that's what makes me happy. And one of the startups that I was working with and advising was at the intersection of legal and web. So it was called App Council, a marketplace for legal services. And I love that idea. I've always had a soft spot for the legal profession, even though I chose not to be a part of it. And yeah, we created this legal marketplace, App Council. So I was there for about 18 months as their founding COO. Got the platform launched, got the cartwheel going in terms of recruiting lawyers to the platform and small businesses who would want to hire those lawyers. But then I left to join GoDaddy after that because I had never been at a big company. And I wanted to see how things work from inside the larger organization, especially one that's about to go public. So I joined GoDaddy before we went public. And also I wanted to be on the acquirer side because I've been fascinated with mergers and acquisitions and how these things work. So that was an opportunity for me to then be an acquirer and really learn by doing it.
1: Okay. And so how long were you at GoDaddy? Seven years.
0: I went there literally thinking that it would be a <laughs> two-year, three-year stint. I get a lot of good learnings out of it because I always consider myself a small business guy. But I loved the team. I love the energy. I loved what we were doing at GoDaddy. Our mission was to tilt the global economy towards small business. I love small business. Like I couldn't think of a better place to be to do that. So I ended up staying for seven years, and it was a wild and fun ride. Great culture, great company.
1: And at that point in time, too, you're eventually, are, I guess, you're doing Pair VC, which we kind of talked about in the beginning.
0: Yes, yes, yeah. My work with Pair has always been something that I've treasured. And, you know, when, uh, again, my friend Pejman Nozad, who was on top of Mida's seed list this past year as uh, kind of the best investor out there. The Forbes Midas list in the US. I just loved seeing him in action and the way he has this knack and ability to see entrepreneurs and help them. And yeah, I've been at VC as an advisor and operating advisor since its beginning.
1: So with Patreon, I heard it many times because you have that many episodes of sign up. So that's always in the back of mind. But then I checked it out a few times and I was like, do I really want to do this? So I'll push it off a little bit and then you posted your goal achievement of 69 Patreon members. And I was like, you know what, what better time than now? Originally, I was going to go for the lower one, the $9 a month. But one, I want to have the conversation with you. But two, I always find that anytime I cheap out, I always find that I want to return it and upgrade to what I really, really wanted. So that's why I'm paying the higher one, if that makes sense. But it was just constantly pushing it off, pushing it off, and then... I would just say, fuck it. I already listened to all of them, so why not? And so that was kind of like your side hustle, if you will, but your main job was working at GoDaddy and then When you finally left GoDaddy recently, that was basically so you could spend the time at Serve Robotics, which we obviously started the story with.
0: Exactly. So when the Serve, just the opportunity to work with Ali and the Serve team was just so compelling that even though I love being at GoDaddy, I couldn't say no to this one.
1: Well, great. Well, thank you for, I guess, walking us through that. I guess as we close the interview here. You talked a little bit, I guess, about the book, but I don't know if there's anything else that you wanted to kind of close with that might help people or any information from it that can maybe summarize your story and maybe we can get a little bit more detail on the book and how we can get it.
0: I appreciate that. Yes, I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. I think one of the biggest mistakes that I think an entrepreneur could make is to delay thinking about their exit and their ultimate fate until Later in the game, even if an exit is not imminent, it doesn't have to be for them to start planning for it. And I I wrote this book specifically as a way for them to see the tremendous opportunity each entrepreneur has in creating the kind of exit that they deserve and they want for their startups. We all work so hard building these startups. It's just such a shame when all this effort just at the end of the day, doesn't get recognized and doesn't get leveraged. Because the reality is most startups don't make it. Very, very few do end up being an independent, sustainable company. So knowing that reality, we have to have contingency plans. And even in the case we do make it, sometimes it's better to sell that startup than to go at it alone. Because what we care about as entrepreneurs, most of us at least, is the mission, right? We want whatever idea gave birth to that startup, we want that to come to its fruition, whether it's bringing telephony costs down or making sustainable future reality, like that's our mission at serve. I would say we are much more as entrepreneurs wedded to the mission than to any particular ownership of a company doing that, right? So... If you really care about the mission, then one of the best ways to execute on it is to build a startup that can be sold to someone that actually can take that mission and run with it. These are bigger companies with resources and ability to scale things, right? Like when Amazon bought Zooks, and they're putting Amazon's resources behind bringing their self-driving autonomous technology to the market. It's very hard for any one startup to do that on their own. The other thing is the value creation. Even if an IPO is what people choose to go for, having someone that's willing to buy your company makes your IPO a lot easier and actually a lot more financially lucrative too. And just on the IPO note, there are 30 acquisitions for every IPO that happens. So the chances are <laughs> if you're successful, you're going to get acquired rather than go public. So. These are some thoughts. So that's why I wrote this book. And it's not a book to be read when you're months or just a year away from an exit. It's something to be read from the beginning and have that in the back of your mind as to what are the things you can do to build value and strategic optionality in the long term.
1: I mean, it makes sense. And we heard that in your story. So thanks for sharing that and putting a book together. Again, I guess if anyone wants to check it out, they can check the link in the show notes and It's called Exit Path, How to Win the Startup Endgame.
0: Yes. Thank you so much.
1: Yeah. And if someone wants to say thank you for doing the interview, what's the best way for them to reach out to you?
0: I'm very active on LinkedIn. That's become my uh, social network of choice. So they can always ping me on LinkedIn. I also have a website that I just recently launched for the book called
1: ExitPath.net. Couldn't get the .com. (laughs) And So uh, yes,
0: uh, you can also find ways to contact me on there
1: okay well great well thanks for coming on and sharing your story my
0: pleasure been great talking to you flash forward to 2009 and i'm back in the golf business as a club pro and i get a message on my myspace page from a 14 year old kid in mexico claiming that i was his father you know he says i impregnated his mom in the champagne room at a club in cozumel on new year's eve in 1998 And I immediately called bullshit because I remember that night vividly. And there were at least five other guys with me uh, that were also prime candidates. So I have to go down there as part of a paternity hearing. And the night before, I have to testify.
1: So if you want to hear more interesting stories just like this preview, well, become a Patreon member today. You know you're missing out. Just check the link in your episode description below to join the club Or go to millionaire-interviews.com forward slash Patreon. Join the club. Join the club. Join the club.